Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. up in Matthew chapter 6, right where we left off last week. Uh, the context, uh, of course, is that he's talking not to the first multitude that came, but he went up to the hill and his disciples followed him. And we don't know the number of those people, but it was the people that were there for more than just the stuff Jesus came to the table with. Uh, the people that actually wanted to hear what he had to say after they had been healed uh, and kept. So in chapter 5, Jesus started to outline that there is a blessing to the people that are in the kingdom, and he outlines this way of thinking and a way of life that we call the Beatitudes. Uh, poor in spirit, mourning, I like the word meeking, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemakers, persecuted, and persecuted with revilement. There are some attributes to being in the kingdom but all of them are a kind of blessing and they're a way in which we can live our life um, and do things that not one of those attributes are things that the world calls good. If self-promotion is what the world has as its, as its primary goal, uh, people in the kingdom see that as fairly empty. In fact, poor in spirit seems to be a better alternative. It's a lot less work um, and, and it's more aligned with truth so you don't end up having to convince yourself of things all the time, right? Um, but the idea is that persecution in, in, at the end of chapter 5 was a when, not an if, and that's tough for some people to absorb. It really is. And, and uh, just again, conversations through the week, and I remember last time we taught through Matthew 5 and 6, do you guys remember this, at the nursing home in Ohio? We had the lady get up and storm out of there because how, how dare you even question her financial security? right? But that's where she put her trust. So when people put their trust in those things, these things can be a little thorn in the side. And, and you know, Jesus did the same thing. Jesus taught a way of the kingdom that's so adversarial to what the world says that they killed him for it. So what I'm teaching in chapter six is if I do my job and present what Jesus presented, uh, there will be some folks that don't like what's being taught. And, but it's not a halfway gospel. It's, it's an all in gospel. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, these encounters that, uh, that Jesus is talking about, these examples we're going to get to today, these are the scriptures. These are the things we bring to each other. And if we're doing our job, there should be something Jesus gets to, especially because this is commentary on how we live, there might be things that where we don't live that way. And then when we hear it, it's tough to hear it because we live in a culture that's so far off of what Jesus is talking about that he's going to get into in chapter 6, we're going to start with giving, then he's going to do praying, then he's going to do fasting. He's talking to a group of people where he's assuming his followers are giving, praying, and fasting because he's going to show them how to do it. We live in a society where that's not even a given with people that call themselves Christians. They, they can go to a church and not give a dime for three, four years and that what is unheard of in the first century. It was absolutely unheard of. 
Um, so the very end of chapter 5 said, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, Jesus is drawing things to the absolute extreme. That if you think your own works and righteousness are going to get you into heaven, then you got to be perfect. And that's the goal. When we say things that are the goal, that doesn't mean that we're going to get there. And we won't get there without the, the Holy Spirit. Um, and we'll see that Jesus also teaches that. It's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox. That goal of being perfect is what we set ourselves for. I think of it this way. When I drive someplace, my goal is to get there without damaging the car. That would be a perfect trip. But I might hit the curb along the way. I might skid to a stop at a stop sign along the way. And those are things that can be forgiven, but my goal is to get there in one shape and in one piece and not have a train wreck in my life. Jesus continues to give specific examples. He starts with praying, fasting, and, and, and giving praying and fasting. These are three keys to the Jewish faith. They still are today. Frankly, they're the three, three of the five keys to the Muslim faith, too. If you go to most religions, giving, praying, and fasting are kind of those things people do to be holy, and Jesus is just going to tip them on its head. Verse 1, we'll start off. All that was just to remind us what kind of message we're in the middle of with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Verse 1 says, take heed. Jesus is assuming that his disciples are going to give. That's not Notice that's not even in question here. But he shows them how to give, and it comes with a warning. Because you can do things that everyone considers holy. Giving to a church, temple, synagogue, mosque, everyone thinks that's a good and decent thing to do. But you can do it in such a way where you're not getting any reward in heaven over it. And Jesus is going to say that if you're walking in the kingdom and you're doing it the kingdom way, there's a way to do this that's, that's going to get you rewards in heaven. And it has everything to do with the heart. So essentially, this is a different kind of relationship um, even the, the, the professional rabbinical class, Jesus is going to critique each of those and each of those things. And I should say as we get into these, um, we have to understand the first century to really get that Jesus is taking shots at the Pharisees that they will not live down. Uh, and in my heart, I might have pharisaical things I believe too about giving and how to give. In fact, it's amazing how when I was 20, I knew everything about tithing and how to do it. And, and I seemingly have gotten more and more clueless the closer and closer I get to the Lord because it really has everything to do with the heart. So when, you know, it, there's a way to do this. When it says charitable, charitable alms and deeds there in verse 1, el-e-u-mus-one, el-e-u-mus, Greek's hard to pronounce. It is mercy in action. That's what it, it, charitable deeds means, is that you're going to exhibit an action that is merciful. And it's assumed that they do this. And we're supposed to shine our lights, chapter 5, verse 16. We're supposed to be doing these kinds of things, but we never do it for our glory. We do it for God's glory. So God cares more about the heart than the outer opinions. So this idea that you do your deeds without accolades is how we're supposed to do it. So God's people are a city on a hill, and the assumption could be that as individuals, 
when we do our giving, we need to shine that out for the world to see. But God teaches a very different thing. He did this in the Old Testament under the law too. God's people as a community are supposed to be there for the world to see, but individuals are supposed to be serving quietly and in humility. We're not supposed to put ourselves at the head of that, that city and, and brag about ourselves. Verse 1, there's no reward from your father. There's actually, uh, I, I think we can see in later passages, there's actually a sin in greed. And this idea that there's no reward is, is as soft-spoken as Jesus is going to get, but it's very conclusive. The sounding of the trumpet in verse 2. Uh, again, this is commentary in the first century. One of the rabbinical practices, I had a lot of fun this week. They, would, uh, they had at the temple a place called the Chamber of the Silent. And it's where people would go and there'd be a big chest back there and they could give gifts that were for the poor people or merciful gifts on top of their normal sacrifices. But you had to kind of go around the side and then you'd put your stuff in the chest and nobody would see you do it. And that was the whole point. But then the Pharisees by the first century had changed that because people weren't giving enough. <laughs> so they decided to bring the chests out and they couldn't carry the big chests around. So they brought little buckets with them and then they would blow trumpets on the street corners. Um, a lot like ringing bells next to a bucket. And the reason they did this, before we get too hard on the Pharisees, is it actually works. When you guilt people into giving, they actually give more. So when you pass the, 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 the tray at church and everybody watches you hand the tray past you or the bucket or whatever they have, um, it actually does increase giving if you guilt people into it. Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't do it with a trumpet. Um, and, and again, the trumpet was to make a big show when somebody would give something and, and put it into these mercy chests all over the city. Um, but at feast times, the trumpets became quite an affair. It became just part of the celebration, part of the feasting. Um, so again, you, you'd have holidays and the trumpets would go out on the street corners and the buckets would go out on the street corners and, and, and they would do this. It was even kind of a special thing and you'd teach your kids how to put money in the bucket and you would you do your thing with that. It sounds a little bit like Salvation Army buckets. And, and they do it because it works. It actually does raise more money. The flesh craves attention. And even in something like giving to the poor, boy, we want attention for that when we do it. And if we give something that's a resource that's, and I think this is the flesh saying this, it's our resource that we're giving to God or to poor people. And for Jesus' folks, it's exactly the opposite. It's not your resource. God gave it to you in the first place. None of it's yours. And when we're meeting needs within the church, that should have nothing to do with what's ours and what's God's. We meet the needs in the church. Um, verse 2, he actually calls them hypocrites. In the Greek, the word hypocrite is the word for actor. <laughs> I thought that was just delightful. Uh, so it's people pretending to be merciful, but what they're really doing is trying to get attention. Jesus has an issue with actions, we should be doing them. He assumes his disciples are going to give, but it should be without acting, without hypocrisy. That when we do these things, there's no selfish purpose to it. We actually give because we want to. And we do it with a cheerful heart. Verse 2, they have their reward. There is an exchange there that does happen. And I think, like, psychologically, we need to understand this. When we give money and people are like, nice job, or they ring a bell or blow a trumpet or um, celebrate what you put in the tray and smile at you, there is an actual psychological benefit for us when we do that. And Jesus says to shoo that away and don't be a hypocrite. So praise can be a trap as much as it's a blessing because we start to think that it's something we did that's special. 
It says, uh, this is a tough passage for some people. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In chapter 5, it said, pluck out your eyes, right? Jesus uses this language to make a point. But when you take one sentence out of the Sermon on the Mount, you can go down entire roads of heresy and ridiculousness. So to try to do things with your left hand, not knowing what your right is doing, the church history is full of ridiculous examples of trying to do that physically, right? And to have these like things where you'd, they sounded like horror movies where you'd put your hand into these secret boxes or something, and then you make sure, okay, (laughs) physically, it's not possible for hands to know things and to know what the other is doing. It's not possible, but spiritually, we can become so accustomed to giving that it doesn't feel like we're even doing it. And this is something that for people that grow up in households where the giving's not a thing, you th- it's a real wrestling to give up something that's yours that you've worked for. I know with our kids, you kids are in the room, so you'll know this story. When they were really little and we started giving them allowance, they had three little buckets to put their allowance in. One was their spending money, one was their saving money, and one was their... Thank you for helping me out on that. Tithe money. Their tithe money. And if you do it from when you're really little, then you just you get a dollar, a dime goes in the time bot, and you just 10%. It's never yours. And I think that practice goes through, at least for Steph and I today, we actually have a separate bank account that we call Tithe. And we literally get a paycheck, take 10% off, and put it in the Tithe. So it never lands in what we would say is our spending money or the resources we have to live with. Um, and then when we give, we would give on top of that or outside of that. And it's just a way of life. So I do think that spiritually there's a way to get so habitualized in our giving that it's not something that hurts. It, it's not a struggle every time we do it. Um, Jesus says you here. It's, it's, don't give like the hypocrites, but you. And the Greek use of that word there is it's an emphatic. You're going to be different than how we all do it already. I think Jesus is assuming that everybody's an actor when they give their tithes. Nobody wants to do it. But his disciples, you are going to be different. And that attitude of thinking it's all God's, and I'm not even really giving. I'm just meeting needs when God shows them to me, and what a blessing to be able to do that. And I'm going to let God provide for me. This is on top of the law. The law only asks um, for 10% or a tithe of the first fruits. So Jesus is asking his followers to go way beyond the law. This is the same as the murder argument in chapter 5. He says, some people say that you shouldn't kill. I say you shouldn't even call people mean names, right? There's a whole level past the law of righteousness that goes way beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's doing the same thing. There he was talking about murder. Here he's talking about tithing or giving. And it's the same argument. There's a whole different way to give than to do it begrudgingly. Verse 4 says, there's a father who sees in secret um, will himself reward you openly. So, What we do quietly without our own attention, there is a reward for us, not necessarily a physical one, but God's going to bless our lives. And anyone that makes a habit of doing this will will testify this is one of the things God loves to see, that we don't cling to our money and we're happy to give it up. So giving is a good thing, but when it's done for the wrong reason, you might as well not even do it, right? It's like when your kids are begrudgingly doing the dishes. And you just think, you know what, you might as well not even do it because you're doing it with the wrong heart. And we don't want you to do that with the wrong heart. So I'll take care. Let me give to you and do the dishes. And you can see that I'll do something I don't want to do because I love you. 
And we do the same thing with our money. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one of us give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. His disciples followed in this tradition that he taught. And he would teach them how to do it. We give with a purity of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart. We don't give with an alternative motive. We don't give because we have a particular paint color we want the church painted. Uh, we give because we just want to keep it real with God and we give. So if your heart says to give, you give. Amen. If the heart says not to give, then don't give. God doesn't want it anyway and it doesn't have any value for you. Therefore, we don't pass a plate and we don't do it on Sunday nights either. We don't pass a plate. There's a spot you can give, but we don't need to know that that's happening. Um, and in four years, God's always provided. There's always been more than enough to do what we want to do in the ministry. So uh, the second thing he gets to, giving, praying, fasting. Now he's going to focus on praying. It's another good thing. He's assuming that his folks are doing, but there's a way to do it that's bad, and there's a way to do it that's good. When you pray, which is commanded, it's something we're supposed to do in the law, you shall not be like the hypocrites, the actors, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they can be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, again, that you there is emphatic, but you, when you pray, go into your room and when you, and when you have the shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Same thing. You can take that out of context and there's lots of wonderful traditions of people going into closets and shutting their door. Confessionals at the Catholic Church are going into a closet and shutting the door in the middle of a big public space. Um, it's, Jesus isn't saying this is a new law. He's saying that the heart is what matters when we pray. And there is a way to do it where we're trying to get attention. Again, I'm going to hit some sacred cows on this, and I'm just trying to get the intent of what Jesus is saying here into our very human skulls that even though we call ourselves Christians, we build up all sorts of traditions around prayer, around giving, around fasting. And I want to go with just with what it says. First, Jesus is assuming his disciples pray. So praying is a good thing. See the tone of that and the context linguistically? He says, when you pray. Uh, he cares about their heart when they do it. Again, he mentions hypocrites. Who is he talking about that would pray on street corners? The Pharisees and the, not as much the Sadducees, but the Pharisees, they're out on those street corners making big, loud, fancy prayers, uh, praying over cities. They love to pray standing. Uh, the word love there is phileo in the Greek. It's a selfish kind of love, the stuff you love to do for yourself. And, and they're missing the point when they do that because it's not a love of God that they're talking about when he says that. Uh, so we don't pray out of some show of holiness. When we pray together with other people in a community, it's always tough because communities get their own prayer culture. And so people will come into that prayer culture and instead of listening and trying to fit in, they'll pray like they're an experienced holy person. And so they'll pray in weird ways that they don't talk. And I think that when Jesus gives his example, at the essence, the spirit of what he's saying is just pray to God normal, like you would talk to God. And again, so depending on your tradition or background, that can be a really tough thing. Uh, going into your room there, the word room is actually in the Greek means a closet. Uh, this is specific. Houses would have this kind of room. Uh, it was specific to where they kept their treasures. It was their treasure room or their storage room. Very small little space. The family would put all the stuff they treasure in that room and then they would lock it up. So it would be like having a safe in your house. So the word that's being used there, go into your room, go into the spot where you keep your treasures 
that's where you need to be praying. Those things you treasure need to be in that spot. So again, this isn't a new law. We see later on Jesus in the upper room prays with his disciples over a meal, right? He's not going into a room or into a closet because that's not the point of what he's saying here. And, and, and yet we have people that take that out of context. What he's talking about, I'll keep repeating this, he's talking about the heart. It's not a sin to pray with other people. It's not a sin to pray in public. It's not even a sin to pray in the street corners. But if we're doing it for our attention, that's the condition of that sentence, then we don't have any reward in heaven for doing that. It's a principle of intimacy with God. And it's an extended example that he's using these extreme examples like cutting off your hands or plucking out your eyeballs. He's still using those extreme examples when he's talking about each of these areas. When we pray to God, it's supposed to be honest, heart-pouring, candid, and a direct connection to our maker. It's a sacred act that we do. Our words don't impress God. So if we pray with these and vows, I got to think God's kind of chuckling a little bit. He's so much mightier than we are and so much more powerful. There's no amount of elaboration we can add to our prayers that will impress an almighty God who inspired that person to write it in the first place. So scripted prayers, using the Psalms as prayers, these can all be good things, but if your intent is to get more points in heaven for it, you're missing the point of just talking to God. Verse 7, and he adds to this thought on prayer. When you pray... Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them, for your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. Now he's specifically talking about, first he talked about the Jewish people praying on the corners, the Pharisees. Now in verse 7, he's talking about the heathen or the non-Jewish people. So they pray, and, and one, a lot of the religions of that day would be to say the same thing over and over again. They get called mantras or recitations. And frankly, it's something that's creeped back into the church where we pray the rosary and you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Even though the Bible specifically says don't pray in repetitions to say the same thing over and over again. Because what happens is it becomes rote. Even the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to read in a few verses, becomes almost automatic. That's how our brain works. And God knows that because he made our brain. Again, it's you, the act of prayer isn't the problem. It's the acting with it's, it, it's the action without the acting that Jesus is coaching his disciples. Don't fake it. If you don't have something to say to God, don't pray automatically out of habit, not a tradition. You know, for me, this is one of those things where I pray before meals and I just do it automatically, and that's probably a good thing. But I have to stop myself and check, is this, am I actually talking to God right now? And if I do that, maybe I need to just take a breath before I pray and just get myself in that place because I don't want to just pray out of repetition, even if my only prayer is thank you for the meal, Lord. And throughout the, the, the prayer example we're going to get is one of the longest in the New Testament. Like a lot of times prayers are, when we see Jesus pray, he prays very short. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One sentence prayers. And he, then he says to pray without ceasing. So there's this, if we're walking in God's way, there's this path that we can walk where we're in prayer all day with these one-sentence short communications. And it's kind of how Jesus teaches them to pray. He gives them an extended example of it. Um, the vain repetitions there uh, is batologio. It, it actually means to stammer or stutter in front of God. And I think that's probably how God sees repetitious prayer. Um, and 
we've all heard these and we can pick on them, but I, I thought I, I had a few examples and then I deleted them because I'm like, yeah, we shouldn't just pick on folks that do this either. Um, the word batologio comes from the uh, um, Batis. He was a Cyrenian king of the Greeks and uh, he was a guy that stuttered and they created a word based on his name that was this idea of doing this. So the wordiness of the heathens, when they would cast spells, they would often cast, uh, they would use the same thing over and over and over again as though repetition adds power. And I think we feel that way as humans sometimes because it takes effort to repeat things a hundred times. So we think effort somehow makes our prayer better. But that's a kind of stammering that Jesus, I think, is saying, don't pray like that. Because they're vain, they're empty repetitions, batologios. They're just stuttering before God. You're just saying the same thing twice. And that vanity is something God tells us not to have in the law. The word many words there is polylogia, which means much speaking. So the same, in the same sense of repetition, it says, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Polylogia is not repetition of saying the same thing over and over again. It's saying lots of things that really don't have anything meant by it. And, and this is when people will pray for 15, 20 minutes, and they're just kind of saying the same thing, but they're going around it. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.2, God's in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. <laughs> you know, he's God. He knows the point of prayer isn't to impress God. The point of prayer is because we need to align our hearts and our will to what God wants. That's the whole purpose of it. Don't be like them. Don't think that our number of words or the types of words we use are somehow impressing God. We're supposed to talk to God, but we're not supposed to be like them. So praying then is for us. It is not to somehow fill God in on things that God doesn't already know. It is not to get to God to do things that he's not already going to do. But it is something where, and this to me is a miracle, the God of the universe will hold himself back on certain actions until his people pray for it. Because it's about training us to come to him with our needs. In verse 9 it says, In this manner, therefore, pray. So Jesus doesn't just say, don't do this. Humbly understand your position by God. Now he's gonna, he doesn't just say how to do it. Now he's going to say what to do or what it looks like. Again, the danger with the next few passages, verse 9 and on, is that people then say, okay, well, if that's how we're supposed to pray, we don't want to use our brain and think anymore. We're just going to say that over and over and over again for 2,000 years. I have to point this out before we get into it. It says, in this manner, therefore pray. The, again, you, you got to take what he's saying and take it at face value. He's giving an example in the manner of, in, 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 which implies even in the English, this isn't what I want you to say. Don't pray these words. He's saying pray in the manner of. This is the kind of prayer I'm talking about. So here's the prayer. We all know this one, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice that Jesus keeps it short and he prays for everything. <laughs> There's, okay, here's the other thing. There's whole sermon series done on the Lord's Prayer where you go to church for two months and they're taking each one of these sentences and breaking it down. So this might be one of the, one of the passages of the Bible. We're going to actually do it shorter than I think a lot of other places do. 
Uh, we're going to blast through it, but I want to know the spirit of what he's saying, not the letter of it. Does that make sense? Like, I, I really want to know, okay, what's he trying to teach his disciples here? First of all, it says, our Father. The first word there is collective, not individual. Again, we're praying as a body. Our Father. It takes the selfishness out of it. And, and this is one of those things that's a powerful position thing. And we have to think about how we address the God of the universe. And I, if there's bigger words, I think the Old Testament takes a lot of stabs at how do we express the name of God that's so sacred and so holy and so mighty, our creator God, our God that is with us, our God that is, sees us. First of all, we don't think that he's just our God. He's our father. The word father there is a, a designation of position which forces us to take a position of humility. Uh, respecting parents is something that I think is assumed in the kingdom. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, have nothing to do with our needs and wants. The first three prepositions of the Lord's Prayer have everything to do with God and God's will. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, when you come to pray, it's not all about you. And he teaches it in word and he teaches it perfectly. These are carefully chosen words. Hallowed be your name. Even the name of God is to be so holy and so sacred that we can't really come before God unless we acknowledge God's sacred nature. The whole Old Testament, they didn't give the name of God. It's why in Matthew it was so amazing that they called his name Jesus. And we finally got the name. Holy, hallowed is your name. Lord, help me to think of your name as so precious that I'm not worthy to say it. That positioning before God gets us ready to pray. Your kingdom come. Um, Jesus in 423, this whole Sermon on the Mount is about God's kingdom. And Jesus, everything we're talking about is explaining the kingdom. A new way of life, a new way of thinking that's beyond the law, that's more righteous than the law, because the world is crumbling away around us. All we can pray is, your kingdom come, Lord. That desire for God's kingdom to come should be so interwoven into our thinking and our life uh, that we can plan for tomorrow, but we live like the kingdom's coming tomorrow. And Jesus even says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We want it to come right now in our lives. In fact, we can just say, I'm not a Roman citizen anymore. I'm a citizen of a new kingdom. And that doesn't make the Romans happy. Like Nero went and started killing Christians because of that attitude that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray for. Your will be done. Uh, again, this is the lead into the prayer. It's not about my will. It's about God's will. You know, we've been praying for Al this week, you know, and sick in the hospital. It turns out he passed away last night. But we're praying for the recovery and we're praying for the health. And God can heal on a dime and give us another 10 years. He did with Hezekiah, right? And he can heal instantly. And we pray that way with the knowledge that it's not our will that matters. And sometimes the heartbreak of death is something God's going to bring his servant home. And in this case, it was a believer, and we know that he's brought a servant home, and that's we don't mourn like the world mourns in those things. I know, Mike, you're dealing with the same thing. Uh, sometimes God calls people home, but we pray more important than our desire to be with people is our desire that God's will is done. And we never want to be outside of God's will. How be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but yours. Luke twenty two forty two. Jesus before he goes to the cross. Simple prayer, easy prayer. But Jesus not only tells his disciples to pray this way, I love that because he prays the way, that way too. He follows his own advice. Lord, not my will, but yours. 
I want this cup to be removed, but man, if I got to go to the cross and die, that's what I got to do. And I want your will more than my will. If we can trust God's plan more than our own, that leads to hope and not worry. And when we, if we can pray that way, you know, the rest of the prayer is almost like it's there. It's for us, I guess. But man, if we can start out this way on every prayer on earth, as it is in heaven, Jesus's mission is going to go forward no matter what, even here on this ugly earth. So we start with this humble position and it aligns us to God before we ask for everything. Then verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Don't let this be automatic because we have it on paintings around our house and things like that. In the first century, folks, they're praying, they're literally praying for food. Lord, help me make sure I get food today. These are not people that are comfortable right? And in the Roman world, food wasn't exactly absent. People weren't starving to death all over the place. So some people have troubles with this verse. Give us a stay our daily bread. Um, it, some people, there's linguistic indicators here that people will dig into. And, but what they're trying to do is unpack this and, and, and expand daily bread to be a spiritual thing. But there's nothing here in the language there's nothing here that indicates that Jesus is praying for even the most basic aspects of life. And I think in context of the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what he's teaching his disciples. We actually pray for food and we're thankful for food. It's where we start praying before meals. Like, let's not take for granted that we're putting food in our belly right now. and We have coffee to drink and there's comfortable seats to sit on because that's not what believers have all over the world. Um, so to be thankful for those basic things. Our Father suggests this idea where it says here in verse 11, give us, it's a community request. Again, it's not a selfish prayer. Everything about what Jesus is teaching them is that they're part of a kingdom. And some people might call that cultish. It's not cultish. It's the way of Christ. Cults are an evil shadow or reflection on what Christ says the church should look like. Living in community under a way of life that the world doesn't like. The difference is we follow an almighty, pure, and holy king. We don't follow some greedy, sex-driven cult leader. So when that gets twisted, it looks really ugly, and then the world can say, well, churches just look like that. No, Jesus established this communal attitude. Give us our daily bread. They're in it together. Nobody starves if they're able to get food. So that idea that we live together, we work together, we take care of one another— Man, there's something beautiful about that. There's something wonderful and appealing about it. Uh, there just needs to be accountability so you don't get sick cult leaders in charge of that, which I think is exactly what Satan loves to do. He loves to give the church a bad name. But there's a communal aspect to life that we are praying individually, but they're praying for their community as individuals. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, this idea that this is, Jesus is going to come back and comment on this one. We're measured by God according to how we live our life. And that's terrifying. That has to be terrifying. Um, if we sin and we don't forgive, there's whole parables about how God treats that. It's hypocritical. Um, it, and it's hard to forgive when people wrong us or, or do something. It's, it's really hard to not harbor that. It's devastating that God conditions this. How about just forgive me and then deal with other people according to how they should be dealt with? Um, but it doesn't say that. This is a tough message. This is a hard one. Verse 13, it doesn't get any easier. 
Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from temptation. First of all, in James, it says God doesn't bring evil into our lives. But there's this idea here that God can test us or put us in testing situations where we need him to deliver us. And the prayer is when we're being tested, deliver us. Don't, we don't want the tests, but if we have them, deliver us from those. Jesus, remember, just came out of the wilderness, right? And God didn't necessarily do evil to Jesus in the wilderness. The enemy did. Um, so we're not supposed to pursue hardship. Again, weird Christian stuff comes out of taking this out of context. Um, but we're supposed to humbly know who gets us out of those trials when they show up. So if we are led by the Holy Spirit and we find ourselves in temptation, that's not coming from God, it's coming from the enemy. We know where our deliverer is and where it comes from. This prayer in its simplicity inclines not our heart towards sin, Psalms 141.4, but we need our help from God to fight the sin that we get into. So there's temptation everywhere, by the way. We don't have to be led into it. We wake up in the morning and we are walking temptation flesh sacks. That's what we are. So we fight our battle with ourselves, a la chapter 5. That's the context of this. We fight our battle with the world, everything the world's spending its attention on. And we fight our battle with the enemy, Satan himself. And between those three things, there doesn't need to be a fourth in that. But when we're being led and we find ourselves in in temptation, Lord, help us to just avoid those things. We have to pray to God, as modeled here, to fight even our own sin that we're tempted to. And we need that help. We need to ask for that help. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to do that. 1 Corinthians 10, we're supposed to flee idolatry and get away from it. But we have to have hearts that want to get away from it. And idolatry is everywhere. Like you can see it on the billboards. Every stinking commercial on TV is either selling you something or showing you something that you don't need. So we need help to fight the evil one. Jesus goes on to clearly teach another piece of this thing. He clearly teaches that there is an evil one. It's right there. There is an enemy. There is a spiritual force that goes beyond our flesh, beyond the world and the world's flesh. Uh, but that there is an evil one out there. Deliver us from that. Lord, there's a spiritual battle going on. We need you to get through it. Isn't that true? Boy, the spirit of this prayer is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Deliver us from the evil one. Lord, because the evil one's out there, we know he's out there, and we're not going to run from him, but we need you to deliver us from him. And then the doxology, of course, is what this Christians call the doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Three prepositions. Kingdom, power, glory. Jesus started by talking about the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist introduced the topic. There is a new kingdom where people can walk in the kingdom. And it's not one of compulsion or power or force or weirdness. It's one of love and submitting to the Lord God Almighty together with other people. So this book ends and brings this prayer back to God, it starts with three elements of God's name, God's will, um, and uh, God's kingdom. And it ends with God's kingdom, God's power, and God's glory, which should be the focus of everything we do. So we can ask for our basic needs, bread. Um, Beyond that, Lord, help us fight this battle with sin. And then, oh, and it's all about you, kingdom, power, glory. So he bookends it. We glorify God. We give him our daily needs. He delivers us from attacks. We glorify God again. See the sandwich in the prayer? 
So Jesus is just saying, pray like that. Pray in that manner. You don't have to memorize it, though it's healthy to memorize scriptures. It's not about the memorization of that and doing it as some further rote repetition with lots of words around it. The point is, we pray in that manner where we give God the glory, we ask for what we need to, we give God back the glory. And that's something that's, boy, when you do it right, it's powerful because you start to realize that you bring nothing to the table in your relationship with God. Not even your fancy prayers do much. Jesus then goes back to comment on what he put in that prayer, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So in case you didn't pick it up in the prayer, Jesus is teaching them something new here. He's giving commentary on the reciprocal nature of how we walk our lives and how God's going to treat us in the kingdom of heaven. This is not a question of salvation, right? Salvation happened, blessed are the poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of heaven. This is an issue of if you're going to follow the kingdom, there is something to how you live your life that's going to be reciprocated when you get to heaven. And even before, when it comes to if God's going to use you or not. And forgiving is a key to our spiritual maturity and health. I like the passage here. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That doesn't leave much of an option. Like for God's people, forgiveness isn't a choice we get to make. If we're doing God's will and we believe Jesus is God, we forgive. Do we forgive everything? And his disciples even came back on this one, right? They're like, come on, Jesus, really? How many times do we need to forgive? And you remember this? We forgive just seven times? That's perfect. That's a divine number of forgiving times. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. You forgive as much as you need to. Seventy times seven. Like this, you just add it up, however much. So religious people start counting up to 70, 490. It's crazy how the flesh wants the rule and Jesus and God keep giving us the principle. You got the rules. They're back in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. If you want the rules, they're right there. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, you got to exceed that righteousness. You got to go for perfect. And you're not going to get there, but you got to try for it. The Lord's Prayer exalts God first, exalts his will first, and makes a request of our humble needs. And this is just a, a confounding thing. I want to, before we move on to fasting, I want to read from Luke 18. It's just a quick flip to the right. Sometimes it's, Luke adds this little piece in there, like when he's doing this, and he gives this story because it stood out historically to Luke as he's gathering this. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. This almost sounds like a joke, right? Like it's so preposterous to go before an almighty God and just put I right up front. God, I think, it's all about me. And I thank you, I'm not so bad. Verse 12, as fast, I fast twice a week and I give all the tithes that I possess. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heavens, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who is humbled will exalt himself. It's another way of saying the same thing. When we pray, we humble ourselves before God. Jesus just gave an example of doing that. But this idea that God doesn't care what Jew or Gentile, doesn't care about male or female, doesn't care where you're coming from, it has everything to do with humbling yourself. The world wants to teach our kids to never humble themselves, never bend, never submit. And in doing that, they're teaching them to never make a relationship with God, ever. And, and we, we just see that it breaks our heart because they're never going to have their heart broken if they've always learned to steal it up in every situation. Those who humble themselves will be humbled or will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is how God sees humanity. Then he goes on to the third thing. So giving, praying, fasting. Notice the, the Pharisee in that Luke passage also, like the tithing and the giving, and that's how they bragged that they were holy. Like Jesus going right after the three things the Pharisees took as their like bragging points. So verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, actors, with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they might appear to be men of fasting, men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to be men to be fasting, but to your father who's in a secret place and your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Again, Jesus assumes they're going to fast. He uses the same format as he did in the last two. The word fast there is to, is nastuo, to abstain from food or drink for a period of time, usually for religious reasons. So to go without something for a season so you can focus on God, Leviticus 16, Numbers 29. It's part of Jewish practice. It's part of, he's assuming his disciples will be fasting now and then. I struggle with this. I don't fast that much. Maybe I should. Jesus assumes it's going to happen. When we do anything to get attention, we take even holy things like fasting and we turn them into corrupt, sick things. It's the same as giving and praying. It's all about the heart. It's not about the show. It's not about the stage. It's about the, the, the maker. And God hates pride. He wants the actions, but he doesn't want the acting. If you got to act, don't bother with the actions. And it's very consistent. Live for God and don't do anything else. So... That idea that Pharisees would list fasting as one of their things we should take notice of made it very important for them us to notice when they fasted. The disfiguring the faces is actually doing things to the face that would make you look like you had been beaten up. Like they're, you know, and he doesn't give specifics, but like they're punching themselves or they're doing something to where they look like they're in, in horrible shape. Um, and in the first century, this, these three things are what worship were. So, again, this is application. We can talk about this afterwards. Maybe I'm not right. Do your own Bible study. But when Jesus takes the top three things that Pharisees do that show themselves to be holy, we have to look at what in our culture are the top things we do that make us look holy to other people. You know, and praying and, and giving, yeah, those are right up there. But you could, I think, take giving, praying, and fasting. And if you want to go after one of our sacred cows, let's take singing and worship at church. Do you ever go to church and see people that just want to draw the attention to themselves? And they're doing things physically so everybody can see that they're emotionally engaged with what's going on. 
or while the teaching of God's word is going on, people that can't stop making a scene of themselves by nodding and agreeing and saying things. And these are sacred cows. There might be people, we love you podcast people, but you might be listening to this and this might be hidden where you've been in church for 20, 30 years. But the whole point of all three of these examples is humility and doing things in secret before our God versus doing things in public so we get the attention of people. So we have these things going on. They're active in the church today. They're the kinds of things Jesus would take issue with. If, 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 you're, greeting, if you're an usher and you're a door greeter at a church and you do it because you like to be seen, Jesus says you're an actor, you're a hypocrite. Don't do it for that reason. And it, that's not to say door greeting and worshiping God and singing are bad things, but when you do it for your own attention, those are horrible. They, they take something holy, sacred, and wonderful, and they make it corrupt, and there's no prize in heaven for doing any of that. And that's the other thing. Um, <laughs> in case some might, people might say prizes in heaven, well, that's works-based theology. No, it's just what Jesus says. Verse 19. <laughs> don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus seems to suggest here that our actions in life are being watched. And that the God who sees us in secret will reward us openly. He says it three times. Which means that after we're committing our life to the kingdom, to Christ, to Jesus, there's something that God's tuned into about our life. And it doesn't say specifically what these rewards are in this particular passage. The word reward in the Greek is thedsoris, which means gathered. It's a term neutral. It's not evil and it's not good. So... There's nothing in this passage that says that treasures are bad because, again, it's a value neutral. Um, and, and in the, the other parts of the scripture, we see treasures being treated both ways. Romans 2.5, but in accordance with the hardness of your uh, impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God. That would be a bad treasure, right? A good treasure, Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. Clearly, to have substance and first fruits, that's not a bad thing to have treasures. God blesses Solomon with wealth, actually earthly wealth. His disciples, he blesses with spiritual wealth. So the blessing and the treasure is not the thing Jesus is talking about here. And so many people get caught up for that on this point. They'll take that one sentence and say, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth. Well, therefore... I'm going to live in a concrete cell with a monk's robe and a Bible and a bowl of water, and that's all I need. And the Benedictine monks lived that way for hundreds of years, and they would take vows of poverty based on these verses. It's not Jesus' point here is it's all about the heart. It's not the laying up of treasures that's bad. It's the laying up of treasures, note the wording, on earth, keeping this world's things as important. In which case, if you do the Benedictine thing for the right reasons, I could see that being really beautiful and wonderful. In fact, we still do spiritual retreats where we just leave the world behind for a few days. And we're magically like, not magically, that's absolutely the wrong word. We are, we are spiritually blessed when we do that. So kingdom people just say, well, why can't I do that every day? Why can't I always be on a kind of retreat with my Lord? Praying without ceasing. God can and does use increase, point made, Here's the other thing. Poor people 
and rich people can both fall to the sin of greed. There is nothing about how much we have that is, is determined here. In fact, in verse 19, the literal wording there in the Greek, and greeting, Greek can usually be really wordy, it's not here. We've added a lot of English words, but literally it's translated like this. Treasure no treasure you treasure on earth. And, and Jesus is using something that's almost something that's catchy that you can remember. Like this is something to like teach yourself. Treasure no treasure you treasure on earth. So anything on this planet that, you, that your heart tends to go towards, stop. Train your heart to not treasure those things. And again, treasure is value neutral. You can have some of those things. But when they become something you live for, like if, you, if your house burned down and that thing burned, would your life be devastated or would life go on because you're just going to follow the Lord? Treasures are those things we accumulate, that we heap up, and that we reserve for ourselves like the chocolates in my desk drawer, right? But I don't treasure those things. Why? And Jesus gives the reason. Moth, rust, thieves. They, they, they all get eaten away, literally. And the Greek there is to eat something away, to rust it. It's all about the heart. It's about the, the taking, the laying up, the verb is the problem here, right? It's how we treat things. There's bad stuff that we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Murder, it's about the heart. Adultery, it's about the heart. Divorce, it's about the heart. Uh, Achan hiding the treasure in Joshua 7, it's about the heart behind it. And then there's good stuff. There's oaths that we take, but it's about the heart. It's the giving that we do, but it's about the heart. This chapter, it's the praying that we do, but it's about the heart. It's the fasting that we do, it's about the heart. Same thing in verses 19 through 21. It's not the treasuring that's the problem. It's the heart behind it that's the problem. And our hearts are eternally sick and twisted in this area. And our goal is to make them perfect unto the Lord. Contrast the treasure, the treasures that God treasures would be the next part. If we can shift ourselves to be kingdom people and our spiritual disposition changes, we treasure the treasure God treasures, the stuff of heaven. The treasure of watching somebody accept the Lord into their life. Ah, I want to put that in a glass case and put little LED lights on it and look at it in the evening. That person came to the Lord. When somebody comes to the kingdom, the angels in the heavens celebrate when that happens. What a treasure. What, what a beautiful thing. When somebody who's broken of spirit gets a word of encouragement, treasure. I'm going to treasure the treasures that God treasures. That's a treasure. When somebody who has a low self-esteem has somebody give them a compliment, Mm, that's a piece of gold spiritually going into that person's life. Those are the things we treasure. We come into a fellowship, even a small little tiny one, and we look around the room and say, how can I bless the people in this room? And how can I give them a gift that will help them? And that's ministry. We treasure the things God treasures. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It sounds so simple, and it is so simple, but it's also true. If our heart is looking after the things of this world, that's where our treasure is. If you want to know what people worship, because this is worship, if you want to know what people worship, you just have to look at their calendar, their checkbook, and what they get excited about when you talk to them in conversation. It's super easy because our actions follow our hearts. We go after our treasures. That's where we spend our money, it's where we spend our time, and it's what lights us up in conversation. You know what I mean when I say light us up in conversation? 
if we want to know what people are serving, we just got to know what's precious to them. And what's precious to them should be the things of the kingdom and not the things of what's on a TV show on whatever night of the week. Wealth, all wealth, if we're talking about money and treasure in the, in the worldly sense, it's an illusion, folks. All of our economy is not based on gold and Fort Knox anymore. It's all a perceived economy. That fund you have that you're putting your life into and you're working 30 years to build up, one year of rampant inflation, it's gone. Poof. Happened in the 70s. Happened in the 30s. And then when that happened, suicide rates went up. Why? Because they put their treasure in that stuff. And when their precious is gone, life isn't worth living anymore. My precious? It's that thing you go for. And you'll throw yourselves into the fires of Mount Hell to keep your precious close to you. And that's all of humanity is doing that. And we have to look at that dynamic in our hearts too. That if given our own path, we would go all the way to hell treasuring things that don't matter. That are, that are illusions. Sabbath? Let's do some godly things. Treasures that God treasures. Look at the Bible. He says we should be doing Sabbath. One day a week, give it to the Lord. That's every single week we can earn an income in the kingdom of heaven. He gives us six days to feed ourselves. And by the way, work is also implied. He gives us one day to just add up some things in the kingdom of heaven and love people and be with people, to study his word diligently, every single one of those words. It's a sacrifice of time. And when we make that sacrifice of time, it's something that God sees as holy. We make it, he asks for tithe, the first, first of our first fruits. We make a sacrifice of our money. And then here's the thing. God doesn't just ask for our time and our money. He asks for our worship. He wants, our, he wants to be the sparkle in our eyes. He wants a loving relationship where we adore the one that made us. And then he goes right to that excitement and that love. It's just verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. This is a heuristic. It's a form of an introduction. But he's saying this like they all know this. The lamp of the body is the eye. Light comes in through the eyeball and it fills the whole body, right? A heuristic, something we just know to be true. Scientifically, it's also pretty much true. That's how it works. Um, if therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So it's a flow of logic from treasures. Treasures are those things we... We heap up for ourselves because we're looking at them. But it's not a separated idea. In fact, if you look to verse 24, we're going to go back to talking about mammon. This idea of the lamp of the body is squished between two passages that talk about our money. And money, it, it is something that everybody can work, everybody can earn and make money. So it is something that everybody is tempted to put their life into. But Jesus turns to his disciples in Luke 10, 23, and he says to them privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. It's not the eye that's the problem. It's what we put into our eye that's the problem. Again, it goes back to, this isn't about the literal lamp and body and eye stuff. It's about where our hearts are at and where we turn our eyes. Just like our hands can't do things without knowing what the other is doing. In the same way, this idea of light and darkness gets introduced. There's present benefits to being kingdom people. And I think Jesus is trying to say that. Like, if you live the way he's telling you to live, you're going to be full of light. And that light should be the light that we as a body share with the world. It's a joyful thing. But a blind person isn't just blind in the eye. 
when a blind person can't use their eyes as a conduit, their whole person, they are a blind person. They're not just blind in the eye. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Where our love goes, our resources, our time, our worship, that's, we become that person. We are that person wholly and completely. This is where we get the phrase worldview. How we see the world changes our views. And then we store up those memories. So there's the good, singular, undivided eyesight, which is undiluted, which lets light in. And then there's the bad. The word bad in here is poneros, uh, literally evil. So Jesus contrasts singular with evil. He doesn't contrast good with evil. And though we translate the word good in verse 22, it actually means singular or undivided. If therefore your eye is undivided, your whole body is full of light. If you keep your focus on God and God alone, it's full of light. The opposite of being singular and undivided is to be poneros or to be evil. Uh, annoyance, hardships, drama is another way to interpret that word. Full of labors is the literal root words of it. You're either undivided for God or you're full of your work, your annoyances, your hardship, your drama. And that equates, Jesus equates that to darkness. Again, these are his words. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, singular focus on the kingdom or you're full of the world and its drama. And Jesus draws a line here that's so clear that you're either a doer in the kingdom because you love the Lord or you're deceived, a la the entire letter of James. Right? And it's not a faith without works question. One of the things that got me on this is why has the church struggled with this idea for so long? It's because we still have our eyes in the world and we don't really want to do the work. I mean, isn't that it? Like, this is just people on a work crew and they're lazy, right? We're not saved because we do works. We do works because we're saved. James says it over and over. Jesus says it too. If your body is full, still looking at the world, you're just going to be in darkness. There's no benefit to it. You're going to be, call yourself a Christian with no benefit and no connection. And worse, we're going to get to the thing where he's like, you know, people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't know you. I don't, who are you? So there is a degree to which you have to question if you don't want to live and focus on the Lord God Almighty, why do you even want to be in heaven? If all you want to do is focus on the world, God's happy to give that to you. And it's dark. And you don't really see the joy of life. So there's lots to do. And then people say, well, what am I supposed to do for the Lord? What, what do I got to do? Well, first of all, you got to pray about that. And the Lord's probably showing you what to do. And you probably already know what it is. But in loss of any other direction, First uh, Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So if you need direction, rejoice, pray, give thanks. That's what you should be doing if you want to add up the things that God's given you in life. Those are the things to focus on. We set our minds on those things that are praiseworthy, a la Paul. I should have looked that one up too. And we share our enthusiasm about those things. So we talk to people and say, man, I'm learning this in the Word. I just did the Lord's Prayer this Sunday at church. Um, I was talking to so-and-so about Jesus, and, and this conversation happened. We just figured out that we live a few doors away from somebody that we worked with 30 years ago, and the Lord's just bringing us back together in life. This is a true story, by the way. Steph can tell you about it afterwards. You just talk about that stuff because 
our focus is wholly on what's going on in the kingdom and we share that enthusiasm and in sharing that enthusiasm we show people that the joy is over here it's not over there that's not weirdness that's just light verse 24 he comes back to the money thing no one can serve two masters in case we didn't get this point strong enough for either you will hate one and love the other or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God. And then he uses a much more expansive term, mammon. There's not much to break down on this. It's impossible to do this. Um, masters, if you serve two masters, in the ancient world there were masters and there were slaves. And if you serve a master and then your other master gives a contrary command, you have to choose what command to follow. So there's times when the world asks things of us and the kingdom asks things of us and we have to decide which one we will follow. That's a tough point. James 1.8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways when we follow after other things because the world's going to just take us whichever way the wind blows. So this idea where he's using the word masters is actually a slave-master relationship that was common in the ancient world. And Jesus is saying we all serve a master. If we think that we as humans are truly independent and we're outside the context of our culture and the people we live in and the norms, we are deceived. We fool ourselves. If we give our devotion to anything, then we have to question what our devotion is going towards. That's the one thing we have as humans that's different than being an animal. Animals don't question their devotion or which master they serve. It's very clear they serve the master of food and sleep and play. And that's what they serve. They serve themselves. And there's no moral ambiguity there. Um, but humans have that unique attribute that we get to choose what we worship. And we can align our worship to anything we want to. So anything that we worship gets our trust because we're, we're worshiping it. So the word mammon there means entrusted in the Aramaic. Uh, it's a broader term than just financial resources. Uh, it's a word the Aramaics would use for treasure. Chaldeans use the same word, mammon, for the word wealth. And the Jews use the same word of manna for the provision that God gave them in the wilderness. So between those three cultures, even the meaning of that word shifts a little bit from being God's provision to the world's provision. So later on in history, the word mammon started to get capitalized as they used it because it became almost like a god. Anything but Jesus became mammon. And the Christian community started to capitalize the word. Because if you serve Jesus, that's a, a capital J. If you serve money, that's Baal. If you serve your looks, that's Asheroth. If you serve power, that's Zeus. You can go on and on and on. There's polytheistic religions out there. Um, they just started to call it mammon because Baal's not real. But you do serve money. So you're a servant of Baal when you do that because that, it's a fertility, resources, wealth god. And so all of that polytheistic stuff put cartoon characters and names on the very human sins. And you simply accept that you worship those sins. Uh, Aphrodite, for those of you that struggle with lust, like you're an Aphrodite worshiper. Just name it what it is. It's mammon. It's anything other than Jesus. So, again, this is where you get people walking out. This is not the church building message. Um, how are we doing on time? Do we care? Okay. Don't worry. 
I, this is the close of all this stuff, okay? If we're not supposed to treasure up things on earth, it comes naturally that question, well then, okay, well, how am I going to eat? How am I going to clothe myself? How am I going to do that? Jesus doesn't back off of his message or condition his message when we come up with those questions. He anticipates the questions and answers them for us. Therefore, verse 25. Whenever you see a therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? It's there because we just got done talking about money and resources, so Jesus gives us the answer. It is not a conditioned answer. It is an all-in answer. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. There's food. And are you not more valuable than they are? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature. Jesus asked three questions there. Um, it, this is not an argument. Huh. Again, you take this out of context and you get whole branches of, I think, her heretical Christianity that don't work or do anything, right? We're not going to do anything, man. We're just going to sit around and drink coffee and snap our fingers at things. Uh, this is not an argument to be lazy. In the context of things, Jesus is assuming that they follow the law. The law says they should work six days a week. And he's assuming that they pray fast. And that, So in every one of these things, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's adding a way of life on top of the law that meets the spirit of the law and doesn't contradict it. So to say, I'm not going to get a job or I'm not going to work and I'm just going to do God. Okay, that's not biblical. And Jesus isn't teaching that in these verses taken out of context at all. He's assuming that people are doing those things. Um, that they'll pray, fast, give. He's also assuming that they'll follow the command of the Old Testament to work six days a week and to give him one day a week. The command goes both ways. It says, whatever you eat or what you'll drink. Um, again, in the first century, he's really taken stabs at Roman culture here a little bit. So in the Lord's Prayer, he said, give us this day our daily bread. So then say, well, that's contradictory. He's worrying about bread in his prayer. And then here he's saying, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. When we go to God with our concerns, it's called trust. It's not worry. It's, we're going to, Lord, we need to trust you. And if there's food to eat, we, we know we trust that you're going to provide it as you will. It also says, don't worry about what you're going to put on. That's not an assumption for nudist colonies. Like there's some weird stuff that comes out of these verses, right? It isn't a question of wearing clothing. He's assuming that his disciples will dress and look modestly. Right? He's assuming that they're going to do that. But this is about the heart. It's about where we put our treasuring of things, which is also what we worry about. So they, they sow nor reap nor gather. Um, these are all kinds of work that a farmer would do to produce food, yet they eat. Um, don't worry about these things. Um, it is about your life. Uh, don't worry about your life. In the Greek, that's psych, where we get the word psychology. It is about our life on earth. It's very specific. Um, there is a Greek word for an eternal spiritual life, which is Zoe, which is where we get the name Zoe, but it's the, the life of the spirit. The word that's being used in this passage in verse 25, don't worry about your life, is the word psych. It has to do with your earthly existence. So don't worry about your earthly existence is one way to read that. Um, so this imperative to look at the birds is spoken as though it's an, excla an exclamation, like it should have an exclamation point where Jesus just says, look at the birds. And he's trying to kind of almost emphatically say, like, pay attention to this. 
We should be worrying about our spiritual life, not our psych and our, 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 our earthly life. So when you run into people that say, I just need to focus on me for a little while, like be wary of that. That's somebody who does not have their eyes on the kingdom, right? Even if they're saying, I just want to get right with God and focus on that. Really? So that's your excuse to not do anything in the kingdom? That's scary. Um, we're not supposed to worry about those things, yet there you are worrying about those things. Is not life more than food? Jesus is clearly defining the kingdom of heaven as different from the kingdom of this world. It's a spiritual and a heart difference. You only have to worry about the Roman soldier beating you up if you're worried about the Roman soldier beating you up. But you can wake up in the morning and choose not to worry about it. It might still happen, but where you put your heart is what he's talking about here. Worrying can not add anything. Literally speaking, and we know this from psychology, worrying has no blessing. There's no benefit to worry in any way, shape, or form. It hurts us psychologically, emotionally, and Jesus is arguing spiritually. The word stature there has to do to maturity and age, uh, not the height of the person, but kind of the positioning of the person. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Again, emphatic in that. Look at, the, look at the flowers, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, won't he much more clothe you, O little of faith? This is not a promise that we're all going to get nice, colorful robes like Joseph did. In the Greek and Roman world, it's the first time in world history that a thing called fashion got invented. The Greeks and the Romans worried about what they would wear. It's like somebody standing in front of their closet trying on five outfits before they decide what to go out to dinner tonight. And I, I honestly think that the, the context of that with what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying walk around nude. He's not saying starve to death. He's assuming that those things are in place. But what he's saying is don't sit and fret about if you're wearing the latest fashion or not, right? We should look modest and decent, but there is a difference between worrying about those things and even the food thing. Like there's been a rise in food snobbery in the United States over the last 20 years. Like my grandma and grandpa, they just appreciated that they had some rice and potatoes. You know, they remember the Great Depression where they were eating squirrels and adding water to the soup to make sure there was enough to go around. So they just appreciated food. But we're at a whole new level of food snobbery now. And if we go into another recession, that'll probably fade away. But we're not supposed to worry about it. So how do you, how do you afford to not worry about these things? Well, the question is we choose to. When we were decided to go with a single-income family, you choose your financial situation. We didn't have two cars. We went with one car for, what, 20 years? Just a one-car family, got it paid off as quick as we could. Instead of buying what the bank said we could afford for a home, we bought like half that. And now we're going even less than that because we want more resources going into the kingdom. So you don't buy the most expensive home you can get. It's a choice you make. And it's a choice that we get to choose on. You can choose to cut coupons or not cut coupons. Though the coupons just lead you to all the stuff you shouldn't eat anyways. But anyways. There's a difference between wearing Costco clothing and fashion that you get that's five times more expensive, but it's the same stuff. But it has a little logo on it, right? And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Why are we worried about that stuff? The world tells us to work super hard, and then we give that six days of labor, and we just dump it into fashion and fancy foods. And that was all stuff that was on the rise in the first century with a prosperous Roman culture. And those are things that in prosperity people get worried about. 
Um, you know, if you're worried about food, we can get you a 40-pound ba bag of rice for, like, nothing, and we'll make sure you got food for a month. You're just not going to eat fancy food. But you'll eat, and God cares about you, and you might even get some gravy for that rice. And then he ends it with that question, Oh, you of little faith. God takes care of these things. Won't he take care of you, oh, little faith? But how easy it is, and, I, and again, I'm convicted on this myself, how easy it is to think, well, where, where are we going to have this in 10 years? Or how are we going to do that? And I'm not saying dump all your retirement funds. Good gracious. Don't treasure them. Don't depend on them. Don't worship them. Worship God and have faith in the right place that we should have it. This money thing is so hard for people, and I'm not telling anybody what to do with their money. I'm just reading what Jesus said, but I'm going to add a few things. <laughs> um, Jesus also said in Mark 10, 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to the kingdom of God. Like, it's, not a, it's, it's a cut and dried for Jesus. You have to deal with this fixation on money in order to be a king, kingdom person. You have to. You've got to not worship it, and that's so hard to do. Matthew, the writer of this book, was an extremely wealthy guy in comparison to his peers. One of the first things he did after coming into the kingdom is he sold a bunch of stuff and had a huge dinner for all the other tax collectors. He threw a party. So he spent his money on a party because he wanted people to hear Jesus and brought them to the teaching of the word. And that's what he decided to put his resources into. He stopped working as a tax collector. He started following the Lord. So... He probably was wrestling with this topic. It's pro probably why Matthew wrote all this stuff down, is this really hit Matthew hard right between the eyes. Uh, Solomon, in all his wealth, who gets mentioned in this passage, actually warns against money. Ecclesiastes 4.8, there's one alone and there is not a second. You have either, neither child nor brother, and there's no end to all the labor. Neither is the eye satisfied with riches. Neither for whom do I labor and bereave the soul of good. This is also vanity. Yeah, it's a sore travail. And I think that's maybe where Jesus got the language for the eye and the light of the eyes and the things we treasure, is he's reading Sam, Solomon and realizing you can have the world and it's never enough. It's never enough. So if the world keeps telling you more, 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 more. The kingdom of heaven says, I got enough. I'm content with all I have. I've learned to be content with what I got. And what I got's plenty because I got the Lord God. I have more than anything the world can offer. Holdings require maintenance and time. You have to, the more you have, the more you have to take care of, the more you're enslaved to those things you have. The less you have, it works the opposite way. Those who love their life in this world, they're going to lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world are going to keep it for eternity. That's not to say to not take care of yourself. That's to say you can't worship it. Therefore, finishing up our chapter, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For these are the things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. He's not a dumb God. He's a smart God. Assuming that God sees these things. And this is where we get the, the sweatshirt we made, where God guides, God provides. If God's leading there, God's going to provide there. Because he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Huge example, Katie and I were actually looking up plans for a shoe rack and like praying about it and like, okay, well, you draw up the plans and we'll make it and we're planning like to get out in the garage and do it because we've got so many people over to the house, we need a place to put shoes, right? And then Lisa calls us over and is like, oh, and I got this shoe rack. Do you guys need that or could you use it? And we were like, uh, yeah, actually, and it kind of matches our house actually. 
So within a day, God, if it's for the kingdom, it's there. And that said, if God didn't do that, we would still praise the Lord. And Katie and I'd get some quality father-daughter time making a shoe rack, right? We don't worship those. We don't worry about those things. The, Yahweh values us and we're precious to him. And that should be enough. So how do we worry about our cloak when we're supposed to, when somebody asks for our, our cloak, we give them a tunic too, right? or he asks for our tunic and we give them a cloak too, back in chapter five. You can't do that if you're worried about owning cloaks. You really can't do the kingdom stuff if you're clinging to the things that aren't yours in the first place and they're all passing in time. So we choose God over the world. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a beautiful pearl. And when he's found one pearl of great price, he went and sold everything he had to buy it. Uh, we're going to get to that in Matthew 13. Jesus just keeps driving this point home. Once you've found the path of Jesus Christ, the way of the kingdom, the Lord God Almighty, you give everything to follow it. And in case you didn't get that strong enough, Jesus says it himself, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is Jesus' advice to us. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. It's hard to even do commentary on this because it's so obvious. Unless you got blinders on and you don't want to see this kind of committed lifestyle, you have to then explain away everything that's here. So there's people that do that. Seek first the kingdom of God really means this, this, and this. And boy, in context, for Jesus is just slashing those things we worship and love. Um, no, I think he's saying the kingdom of God is pretty much where we put our singular focus of the eye, where we can't serve both God and mammon. You can't do it. You have to seek first the kingdom of God and not worry about the mammon. So this isn't about salvation. We've been saved since the beginning. Blessed are the poor of spirit. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. We were saved at the start. It's not about that. It's about praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, ministering to others, loving one another, fellowship with, with, with each other, giving, praying, fasting, all these things that we're doing, but we do it from the heart. Um, in Luke's version of this teaching of Jesus, he adds the parable, this one. Luke 6, 43. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you meet people that all they can do is complain, you got to wonder where their heart is. And if you meet people where all they can do is praise and worship, you're either uh, uh, annoyed by that or you're in love with that. And you realize, wow, these people are just constantly talking about and thinking about the kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing when you see that. So... Um, do not worry about tomorrow is um, this idea to, to, to focus on the kingdom things. Again, this isn't something to be stupid with our lives and to be foolish with our lives. Clearly, in the law, there are Jewish holidays where they're commanded to remember what God's done. Clearly, in the law, there is prophecy where they're commanded to look forward to tomorrow and what's going to happen next. But those are both in the kingdom focused on God. So there's this idea of living one day at a time but obviously he's assuming, just like with everything else in chapter 5 and 6, he's assuming his disciples are following the law. But this goes beyond the law and how they're supposed to do things. So they're still supposed to hold the, the holidays. Jesus does. He comes up for the holidays and the festivals. And the point of those is remembering. 
And he, he minds the prophets. And the point of those is looking forward into the future. But those are kingdom things versus what the world wants us to spend time on. Uh, James 4, 13. Um, Come now, those of you that say today or tomorrow we'll go do such and such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Don't you know, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we shall live and do this or that, then we can worry about the future. We can worry about the future, but we want to worry about the future of the kingdom and what God's doing. And that idea of just saying, man, if the Lord wills it, I'll be there. If the Lord doesn't, I won't be there. And it's a principle of the heart and how we live and how we think. It's entirely beautiful, beneficial, and powerful in Jesus' name. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, when you preach it, it's, it's, sometimes, it's so direct, Lord, and it's so simple. Uh, and, and our hearts want to pull back. Uh, but Lord, help us to lean into your kingdom and your word. Lord, help us to seek you in all things, to do it with wisdom. Uh, Lord, as you brought us the entire Old Testament to show us the law and what you expect of us, Lord. But we don't want to just do those things out of, of a mechanical service, Lord. We want to do it because we love you. We have a heart for you. You've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ to us, and we adore what you're calling us to, Lord. We love the idea that you are a godly and a good king. Uh, this world is... is crumbling around us and we can see institutions staggering under the weight of of evil hearts and we can see um, those things that have cultivated a godly culture are things that are becoming despised uh, by the by the world uh, lord we want to do what we can do to preserve um, but we're not going to worry about it either lord we trust you we worship you and you alone and your hand is moving in history and we trust that that's going to happen too. Lord, help us to plan for tomorrow, but live like there might not be a tomorrow, Lord, to think in such a way that you could come back immediately. Uh, Lord, we don't resist that at all. We welcome it. Um, Lord, and we want to just um, not waste a minute, a conversation, or a moment, Lord, but to consider what would you have us do in each of those situations to live under your kingdom. Um, Lord, help us to be wise in all that we do. Um, and Lord, help us to honor you with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds and lift you up and elevate you because you are holy and sacred. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.